This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. So if you hear some sirens behind us during the show, that's why there's plenty of traffic right outside our windows. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Al Jorgensen, frontman of the band Ministry, about his new book, Ministry, The Lost Gospels According to Al Jorgensen. Then, PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon will tell us about his trip to Necronomicon, a convention dedicated to horror author H.P. Lovecraft. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We have some exciting stuff on the fiction list this week. Oh, good. Um, There's actually four new books in the top four spots. Uh, Number one is Lee Child's Never Go Back. This is a Jack Reacher novel uh, in his his series. Uh, I think it's the 14th in that series. We gave it a starred review, which is pretty impressive for a series that's had 14 books. Usually, the authors kind of get into their groove and stop doing stellar work. Right. Um, And this one's pretty impressive. Uh, So Jack Reacher is a former military cop and uh, he investigates crimes uh, related to the military often and in this particular uh, event he uh, heads to the Virginia headquarters of his old unit uh, the 110th military police in hopes of meeting with a major uh, who's got some interesting information for him but thugs want to keep them apart so this uh, involves manhunts on both coasts a link to corruption in Afghanistan in the wake of the US military drawdown the reduction of troops in Afghanistan uh, and the possibility for romance between him and Major Susan Turner. So uh, our reviewer said this makes the entry one of the best in the series. So uh, no surprise that Lee Child's fans have put him on the bestseller list. He's certainly been there many times before, but it sounds like this is going to really satisfy them. Yeah, especially as you said with the star, you're right. As as the series continue, you don't often see stars on uh, books popping up. So uh, I think Sounds like the fans will be delighted. Um, Number two on the list is another thriller, Clive Cussler's The Mayan Secrets. Uh, And this is uh, the fifth novel that he set in Fargo. Um, He's uh, co-authored it with Thomas Perry. They've worked together before. Cussler is another one of those authors who's been around a really long time, and he's started co-writing books, I guess, so that he can uh, speed up the process a little bit by farming out parts of it. Um, And certainly thriller fans just keep gobbling them up. And, uh, you know, this one seems to be pretty standard stock uh, sort of thing. Um, in this case, uh, there's a, a couple of uh, a couple of folks, Intrepid Sam and Remy Fargo, uh, and they've been tagging great white sharks off the west coast of Mexico, uh, but then an earthquake hits the mainland and they volunteer their services there. And of course, uh, a thriller plot gets built on this uh, humanitarian mission. Oh, wow. Uh, number three on the 
fiction hardcover list. Uh, again, another new book. This is Sticks, S-T-Y-X-X, by Sherilyn Kenyon, the latest in her Dark Hunter series. Uh, this is an urban fantasy series, and uh, each of the, the books in the series focuses on a different person and their uh, romantic exploits, their exploits through worlds of paranormal entities and uh, centuries-old creatures. So this one uh, features someone named Sticks and uh, is the the twin brother of Atron, mm. who is another previous star, is a fan favorite. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's got his romance, it's got uh, adventure, it's you know, that, that very solid, reliable, paranormal formula that, again, will keep readers coming back. And number fourth on the fiction hardcover list is Christine Fian's Dark Lichen. And this is part of Fian's Carpathian series, which, again, is a paranormal right. series uh, of a, a sort of similar mold. Uh, this one is uh, perhaps more on the erotic side as well as the romantic side. Uh, and female readers just flock to these books. Oh, so wow. there's uh, there's plenty of buying power there to get them on the onto the list. Um, that one clocked in 14,000 sales in the past week to put it at number four on the on the fiction list. Wow. Well, it's great to have, as we thought we would in September, uh, plenty new titles on the list. Yep. Now, over in nonfiction, I, I have to say, I am I, I, just when you think you uh, have read everything there is on the Duck Dynasty, there is yet another title <laughs> at number one. More and ducks. More, more ducks. ducks. And and I was I, when I when I saw the first book hit number one, I, I I couldn't believe it. I had no idea. I had never seen this show, and now this I believe is the third. This is uh, Cy Robertson, the author, and it's called Psychology, and that's S I Psychology One. Uh, so you assume there's going to be uh, maybe more coming. Tales and Wisdom from Duck Dynasty's Favorite Uncle. Um, and already uh, reviewers or readers on Amazon and elsewhere have just talked about how much uh, they like uh, reading these books. It's like kind of sliding up to your uncle on the porch step, drinking a beer and listening to him tell stories of uh, tall tales or whatever of his youth anyway uh really popular number mm -hmm. one uh, i think there are three on the list right now but uh, i impressive. think the big book um coming at number nine is uh salinger yes the much awaited uh biography this is by david shields and shane salerno uh simon schuster is coming out with it so 720 pages mm -hmm. big thick book uh and we have a review that's coming out on Monday, mm -hmm. uh, and we say the culmination over 200 interviews and almost a decade of research, David Shields and Shane Salerno uh, offer an effective blend of oral history interwoven with narrative and analysis of the iconic writer and his body of work. Now, there also is a documentary which will be accompanying this book, so, uh, and this, this lands at number nine. And there's been some interesting J.D. Salinger news lately, worried uh, mm -hmm. about found menu scripts and things right. that are going to be published that no one ever expected to see published so uh, it's uh, it's definitely a hot time for people who are interested in him. Oh definitely definitely and and because he's been so secretive for so long mm -hmm. this is uh, I, I think fans uh, will, will just be clamoring uh, 
to get their hands on this and and to see the documentary and to hear what's going on. You're absolutely right. This is uh, all kind of a confluence of Salinger things. So. Salingeria. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Al Jorgensen will tell us about his rich and checkered musical career and his many adventures between shows. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Al Jorgensen on the line. He's the author of Ministry, The Lost Gospels, according to Al Jorgensen. Thank you so much for joining us, Al. Well, thank you, Rose, except that I'm the co-author. Well, yes, oh, I was I... actually going to ask you about that. Um, John Wiederhorn is credited as your co-author on the book. How did the two of you work together to put this together? Well, I've known I've known the cat for like 18 years, like doing interviews for MTV and stuff, and uh, he seemed to be a safe bet. My wife really was pushing for this book. I didn't want to do it. I mean, uh, we basically did this book because, like, you know, me and my wife would go out to, like, some social function, a dinner party or a symphony or something, you know, something cool, not just like a nightclub or a bar or something like that, and we'd go, and by the end of the night, I'd have 20 people sitting around me hearing me tell these, like, sordid tales of what life on the road is like, uh-huh. and so she said, why don't you just print out a pamphlet and hand it out at the beginning of the night, and uh, you can just go sit in the corner and drink vodka by yourself instead of like, the whole party listening to these horrible stories, and that's how the book developed, you know? So it's really just a way of saving yourself some time. Yeah, here, uh, yeah just, just go, go to a party and hand out pamphlets right away. That's, <laughs> that's what you do. <laughs> so what was it like working with, with John? I mean, you, you said you've known him for a while. Uh, did, did he, uh, I mean, did you guys sit down, talk about it? Uh, and Well, I spent one week with him uh, and made him drink shot for shot with me. And, uh, and just yabbered into a microphone you know for a week and he and uh then he goes off and does his four weeks of due diligence to make sure i'm just not making stuff up you know mm-hmm. and then uh and then he comes back for another week and i make him do shot for shot with me and i tell tales and uh then he goes back and does another four works of due diligence to make sure i'm not making stuff up then it goes to the publisher and their legal team, six people or something, uh, like make sure I'm not making stuff up and make sure we can't get sued and this and that and blah 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 blah. And uh, I, I, you know, this is I'm 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 a rookie to this this whole uh, you know book thing. Although I have two other books coming out, uh, but this is my first one, so I'm dipping my toe in the water, and I guess I'm starting to understand how this works. It's just. Uh, uh, a drunk guy speaking into a microphone and then legal teams scrambling around for like the next like 15 weeks trying to figure out if, what the hell you just said. Well, then I've, <laughs> I've got to ask then when, when, when uh, all was said and done, how much of that stuff did, how much did they uh, catch you making up? Well, this book is dead on accurate. This is the PG version, but, uh, 
like Salinger, uh, the, the verses uh, two and three will not be published till after I'm dead. Okay. <laughs> so those aren't the two other books you're referring to, then. <laughs> No, 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 those aren't. No, no, I've been writing a fiction book for about 28 years, and I finally, finally, after getting done with all this music stuff, got an ending to it, and uh, it'll also be published, and it's a, it's a book about a serial killer in Chicago, uh, a fictitious one. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's called Persuasion, and... Uh, well, it was originally titled Mindfuck, but publishing company already <laughs> told me, like, uh, that's that's not real cool. This is never going to be so, an Oprah's Book Club pick with a title like that. Right, right. So it's now called Persuasion, and uh, I'm just finishing it up. Uh, I'll have it finished by Christmas. But like I said, I've been dabbling on and off for about, like, uh, I started it 28 years ago. I saw the notes, man. I saw the date. And uh, so that's coming out. And I also have a 13-part comic book series coming out called The Captains of Industry, of which uh, apparently I've become a superhero and I have superpowers. So that's kind of cool, too. So those are the two books I'm referring to. That's pretty fantastic. So you have a publisher lined up for your novel? Yes, ma'am. I sure do. The same one. Mm -hmm. They they seem to like me there because... Uh, Apparently, my story's panned out, and the lawyers aren't pissed at me that I'm not just making stuff up. So, <laughs> <laughs> so they'll pretty much take anything I give them right now. <laughs> so, is that going to be your your next career? Is writing novels? Is that is that what you're planning, or this is a one shot? Well, no. Well, it's a two shot. But mm -hmm. the thing is, because I had to do the same thing with uh, Sam Sheeran, who's doing my comic book series. Uh, and sit down and do basically the same thing, just brainstorm amongst each other's shot for shot and uh, and come up with concepts for my superpowers and other cameo appearances and and stuff like that. Um, but I you know I, I, you know we're, we're getting this out. Uh, I'm sure I'll get in a couple years the itch to do some music again, but right now, uh, you know, with the passing of my guitar player mm -hmm. and this and that, I just, uh, and, and the release of this new record, I'm just, I'm over music for a couple of years. I'm not doing anything musically for a couple of years. I own my own recording studio, and I guarantee you that thing will be double bolted to make sure I can't get in there for a couple of years. Yeah, sure. Now, do you mind if I, if I just go back a little bit in time? Uh, you attended the University of Illinois in Chicago, and I think you had once said that you might teach, but uh, eventually you went on to DJ. What what were you reading at the time? What music were you listening to? What was happening back then? You know, it was a really cool scene at UIC. Uh, uh, bands like uh, Big Black, Naked Raygun, and Ministry, and all my side projects, We'd all sit in the cafeteria together, just like, uh, you know, basically early, no, not, not even early 20s, like 19, 20 years old, and just talk about the possibilities of things. And it was a really creative atmosphere. Um, and as far as teaching, um, I'm, I'm basically, instead of touring on this record since my guitar player passed, and my best friend, by the way, um, yeah, of 30 years... Yeah, thank you. But uh, 
at any rate, um, my only tour on this record is just going to be uh, a college lecture speaking tour. Hmm. Uh, some of them have formats. Some of them are just more like uh, me and a moderator and taking questions, uh, different topics, different subjects, uh, specifically, say, political science or, say, uh, uh, ancient history, prehistory history, and then also, of course, uh, my uh, foibles with the uh, music industry. I'm sure it's going to be a topic that will come up. So yeah, we. Uh, I was looking at the review of your book in Publishers Weekly, and it says you you present your musical career as nearly accidental, something you just kind of did between sex, drugs, arrests, and brawls. So that that sounds well, like a, an exciting time. Well, unfortunately, uh, this society rewards. Uh, you know, what I'm doing now, as opposed to teachers, uh, I wanted to be a teacher, but they just kept giving me money to be a musician. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I kind of got stuck on the hamster wheel on that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and had to deal with that for about a couple decades and a half or so. And, uh, you know, I, I just always wanted to be a quiet little teacher, make a nice little living and teach high school and, and college, hopefully college. But... I'd settle for high school. I can't go any less than that. Uh, junior high, I don't know, man. I, I I can't relate, but I can I can relate to obviously high school kids and college kids. They like my music and stuff, and uh, you know, uh, I I can relate to that. And I think I'd be a damn good teacher. And I still really want to pursue that more than anything else. But um, you know, hey. Things happen. It's it's a fluid situation, so we'll see what happens. My crystal ball is not working today. As you had mentioned, uh, you went through some, some pretty rough patches there, living the high life. Uh, you were a heavy drug user for decades. How did you manage to uh, not just function, but thrive as a musician, a producer, an entrepreneur? Well, I, you know, seriously, this, this may seem like a lame answer, but I think it's DNA. Um, I'm a functional uh, drug addict, alcoholic at all times. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I, 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 my my stepfather instilled a really great work ethic in me, and uh, party hard, work hard kind of thing, you know. Um, and so I was able to uh, still get stuff done, even though being completely off this planet, and. Uh, and which is good, I think, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense. For me, well, it works for me, but I'm not recommending that for everyone else. I mean, there's some people that don't need assistance on being creative. And uh, apparently I needed a lot of assistance <laughs> on being creative, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a lot of it was to power your creativity, to help you write or perform? Was that the, the original... Uh, impetus to yeah yeah drugs worked in the reverse for me and alcohol uh, they they actually got me more motivated mm-hmm. to get me into the studio and and do things over the years as opposed to like uh, you know being sober and 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 clean uh, and I don't know I really had no interest I'd rather prepare uh, a history lecture than write an album. But if I get if I was high and I was drunk, I'd go in and write an album. You know, it just seemed like a lot more fun at that point in time. But uh, now that I'm not so high and so 
drunk anymore. I mean, there are your limits, right? Uh, eventually, you have to reel reel the fish in, you know. <laughs> and uh, so now I'm I'm back down to what I wanted to be in the first place. So uh, it's it's kind of cool. It's full circle. So you've stopped using heroin now for about two years, did you say? Eleven. Eleven, my friend. Eleven eleven as of September 5th. Heroin and coke, all that stuff, none of that. Never relapsed, never been tempted. Hate it. Uh, I see the destructiveness of it uh, eventually. At first, it seems all great. It, It, you know... It's just like fishing, man. And and uh, a barracuda and a coral reef sees a shiny hook, he'll bite at it, you know. And uh, it seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, <laughs> you yeah. know. But uh, once you get in that boat, you're not so happy you bit into that hook, you know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. And you say in your book that once once you stopped, you started getting a little heavier into tattoos and piercings. Well, tell us about that along with how that you know maybe affected your your um, your artistry. Well, you know, t- tattoos, to me at that point in time, when I really started getting filled up, I mean, I'm filled up now, and I have a different take on it, but at the time, I view it as almost uh, me being a cutter or something, you know, mm-hmm. somebody who just, you know, cuts their arms or whatever, uh, just just fuck me up, you know, is, is what I said when I first went in there. I don't care what. And that was like uh, 25 years ago when I really started getting the stuff. And now I take it as art, you know, and uh, I make sure that what I have on is is really cool. I'm working on the lower half of my body now. The top half of my body's pretty much done. There's no room. (laughs) Uh, But uh, at first, really, it literally was like a cry for help, man. It was like like being a cutter. Just, uh, Just put anything you want on me. You know, I don't care. I just want to feel some pain and get it out of me. And uh, it was almost, you know, cathartic in nature, but, uh, you know, it was kind of sick, really. I mean, uh, this was a person, uh, me, back then, that was uh, not well-balanced at all. Sure. And, uh, you know, looking at your the, the photo uh, on your book... Uh, uh, it's a pretty great one. It looks like you've got about a dozen piercings in your eyebrow, your uh, your nose, your cheek, but you're not wearing your snake eyes in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those contacts sucked, man. You know who got me? You know who got me hooked on that was Spielberg. When when I uh, when I did AI with him, I'd go to the makeup room and I, I saw all these like weird contacts that they had for like their you know futuristic people or whatever and I was like let me try on some of those and uh, I I, kind of got addicted to it changing my eyes like completely from black to white to you know snake eyes to this and that for a while and then I went on stage one day with those things on and uh, the sweat poured down into them and I you know I never wore contacts before Mm. you know and uh, and that sweat coming on in there I I couldn't see a thing yeah I was literally like a deer in headlights man up there on stage so I had to quit wearing them and I got rid of them yeah plus you know no one in the audience can probably see your face clearly enough to appreciate that your eyes are a different color 
Well, back then they could. We used to play clubs. Now we do festivals. Right. But uh, back then there was it was mano a mano, man. Mm. <laughs> it wasn't like some twenty foot barrier stage and security and you know a couple hundred thousand people about a half mile away that you can't see anyways. Maybe I should start wearing them again if I ever play because it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I, I love I love those small venues though. I I think those shows are the best. Did you prefer those, or do you do you like doing the festivals? Well, it's just it, it's comparing apples and oranges. Mm-hmm. I mean, the festivals are so easy, and you are so overpaid. <laughs> uh, you know, no, seriously, it's just like you're just an overpaid babysitter up there or a traffic cop. Uh, you know, you you know your songs by muscle memory by then, and so right. you basically just direct the mosh pit of like you know hundred thousand people slamming into each other up front. And, uh, you know, hey, you on the left, put that knife down. Hey, you on the right, quit hitting that girl or something like that, you know. Mm. And a club is just really intimate, and it's face-to-face, and there's some uh, really delicious times, and there's really some foobar times when you uh, play small venues. You know what I'm saying? And they're right in your face, like literally four feet away. Uh, and they can pick up, you know, every every pimple or wart that you have. I mean, they're that close. And 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 sometimes that works out well. And you you come off the stage feeling like, you know, wow, that was cool. We want them over because generally mosh pits are just hostile. They're just kids wanting to get out energy. It's just like I said, like cutters. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. uh, they they're not listening to a message or the music even. They just feel the pulse and they react instinctively and they're and they're full of aggression and they don't know why. And they just beat upon each other, and basically, I'm the world's best-paid babysitter traffic cop, you know? So, Oh, uh, man. So you spent a lot of time with William Burroughs and Timothy Leary, uh, especially Timothy Leary. Uh, you lived in his house for a couple of years in California, am I right? That is correct, sir. And what, so, I, I mean, at the time, were you, uh, say, say, reading William Burroughs? Were there any other uh, literary influences around that time for you? Uh, I, I already read all of William's stuff at, yeah. by that point. Matter of fact, William is the one that introduced me to, to Timothy. Ah, right. Uh, yeah, he told me, young man, I have someone I think you'll get along with. <laughs> 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 and, uh, he introduced me to Tim, and, and sure enough, he was right. And uh, and uh, I was uh, with a girlfriend then, and uh, it, it didn't work out because of my jackassness. And uh, so I went and lived with Tim for two years, where he did like basically MDMMA and DMT experiments on me for two years, wow. and wrote and wrote notes. You know, uh, they they it got it got so bad to the point where uh, they didn't, like, University of Cal Berkeley would send him these new, you know, they'd change a few atoms or molecules in the drug and see how that would affect it, you know, CIA kind of stuff. They'd send it to Tim. They, it got to the point where they didn't even bother doing it on rats or anything. They just went direct to Al. Hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so, so you got to be his, uh, his science experiment for a couple of years. 
Yeah, it was kind of fun, though, man. I, I I didn't mind it. I was a willing participant. It's not like he was Dr. Mengele, like, you know, uh, you know, trying to, you know, take my chromosomes and breed it with, like, a pig or something like that and right. make some creature. It was just like, uh, you know, he knew that uh, I had the experience of, of being um, intoxicated, uh literally 99.9% of my day, and he figured I could handle it, and he was right, and he got some really good notes out of it. I'd love to see those notes when they come out someday, because there were some really interesting trips at his house, I'll tell you that. Yeah, I I don't doubt it. Well, we've been talking with Al Jorgensen, and you can find his book, Ministry, The Lost Gospels According to Al Jorgensen, in stores right now and uh, it sounds like down the pipe we'll be able to find his novel and some comic books out there as well so thank you so much for joining us Al thank you so much and uh, Rose and what is it Mark yes <laughs> alright man thanks dude bye bye I'm Mark Rotella and I'm Rose Fox and this is Publishers Weekly Radio next up PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon takes us on a trip to Providence Rhode Island for Necrom. <laughs> Necro oh my god. Necronomicon. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon is back from Necronomicon, a conference in Providence, Rhode Island, dedicated to the works of H.P. Lovecraft. Welcome, Peter. Thank you. It's very nice to have you back on the show. So tell us a little bit about what Necronomicon is. Necronomicon is named, in case anyone doesn't know, after H.P. Lovecraft's famous fictional book of black magic, the Necronomicon. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. it ends in the word uh, con, which makes it convenient for conferences that are called cons in, in our world. Mm-hmm. Now, Necronomicon, I think, first uh, uh, appeared in 93, 95. It was in Danvers, Massachusetts, near Mm -hmm. Salem. It was held every couple of years through the 90s, and then there was a hiatus. There may have been one uh, in the first decade of the 21st century, but this is the first Necronomicon in some years, and it was also the largest. Uh, Apparently, some 1,200 attendees Mm -hmm. came uh, the weekend. Uh, August, um, uh, what was it, uh, basically the Thursday before the 22nd through the Sunday, the weekend closest to Lovecraft's birthday on August 20th. And um, walk us through the show a little bit. What's it like being there? Are there uh, events? Are there speakers? Are there dealers? There's a whole range. There are the panels uh, filled with Lovecraft experts. There was a a track for Lovecraft scholars to present papers. Unfortunately, I missed all of that, but I understand there were some very good ones. Mm -hmm. So this actually really was more of a scholarly gathering than some in the past. Uh, A lot of them have focused on gaming. Uh, There's a role-playing game called Cthulhu that's immensely popular with people, many of whom have never read Lovecraft or find Lovecraft too difficult to read. Apparently there was a track for them as well as for films, but I had nothing to do with <laughs> any, any of that. Uh, I was on a number of panels myself. I attended the keynote address on Thursday, 
where leading Lovecraft scholar S.T. Joshi held forth mm -hmm. and spoke about Lovecraft. Uh, it was held in the First Baptist Church on College Hill, the old uh, colonial neighborhood where Lovecraft grew up. Uh, Lovecraft went to Sunday school in this school, but uh, this church, excuse me, but only briefly. Uh, he soon discovered that he preferred the Arabian Nights and after that the, the Greek and Roman myths and that was the end of his uh, Sunday school education. Mm -hmm. Can you actually tell us a little bit about who Lovecraft is for for our listeners who may not be initiated and and what the fascination I mean he's he's obviously garnered a lot of scholarship a lot of readers and and now a, uh, a conference. Gosh you know he was his dates are 1890 to 1937 he's been called the 20th century equivalent of Edgar Allan Poe. He was virtually unknown in his lifetime apart from the readers of Weird Tales and other pulp magazines. He never had a collection of his stories published in his lifetime. He died considering himself basically a failure. Mm -hmm. Well, since his death in the decades uh, of particularly, you know, more recently, his, his uh, fame has, has grown mm -hmm. steadily. And it's not just on an academic level. In terms of popular culture, I think the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game had a lot to do with that. I mean, now you can get uh, Cthulhu uh, stuffed dolls. I, I have one on my shelf above my desk. <laughs> uh, the, he's pervaded popular culture in a way that I could never have imagined. And why, you know, there's something about his concepts, his stories, what marks them apart from, you know, most standard horror fiction is that it's not just about battling monsters. There's a, yes, there are monsters in his um, stories, but they're basically aliens, extraterrestrials who have come from somewhere else and have left traces of their civilizations on on earth mm -hmm. where in some cases they've been long before man evolved and his stories are typically about a single individual's uh, a, a, a attempt to come to terms philosophically with with that concept i mean that's that's uh, if i can put it you know somewhat crudely what marks him apart from most other writers and he was very much a, a writer of his time, and he also had some of the less savory ideas that were common at his time. Um, certainly his attitudes toward people who weren't white was uh, they left a lot to be desired. So how do modern audiences kind of work with that? I'd like to address that. Yes, he's a dead white male yep. who was notoriously racist and sexist. Uh, he was a prolific letter writer, and he held forth in very entertaining ways at great length on all sorts of subjects, from cats and colonial architecture to ancient Rome to weird fiction to the inferiority of certain races and, and how he hated the mongrels in New York and where he lived for a brief period. Uh, unfortunately, he was a man of his time of, I was on a panel in which we said, well, was he just sort of a typical white male of his generation or was there something uh, really sick about him? And uh, Scott Connors, a sometime uh, PW, PW uh, freelance reviewer, who's also a psychiatric nurse, I mean, had some, uh, you know, actually had some clinical diagnoses to make of his character. 
Uh, I, I'm somewhat conflicted about it. I'm, I'm not really sure. Yes, he, he had a problem, but at the end of one of these panels in which he was sort of picked apart uh, on these points, we took questions from the audience and a, and a young woman of color got up and said, I was in the hospital recently and I read Lovecraft and I found a lot of cons consolation in, in his fiction. Mm -hmm. And for me, it doesn't matter who the person is, whatever his faults, it's the work that, that counts in the, in the end. And I, and I found that quite moving. Mm -hmm. That, you know, there's something about him that has a universal appeal that transcends race and gender and however uh, he may have fallen down in that respect his work for the most part is compared to a lot of pulp fiction of that time relatively un, un uh, racist shall we say mm -hmm. uh, for, for, for one thing he he didn't his heroes are all sort of white male scholars like himself uh, there are passing mentions of, of uh, inferior peoples. I mean, there are a couple of stories like the horror at Red Hook set in New York that reflects his unhappiness living uh, uh, in the city at the time. But, you know, most, most of his fiction is, it has not been dated by, by that. And tell us a little bit more about your own experiences at the convention. You said you were on some panels. I was on some panels. I unfortunately didn't get to other panels. <laughs> I well, that's always the way, and you can uh, only be in one place at a time. Well, I saw fragments of some. I heard there was a big panel on S.T. Joshi, someone I've known for years, and I learned a few things about him that I didn't uh, know before. I uh, attempted to go to the Providence, Providence Athenaeum, where they had a, a new bust of Lovecraft on display. Unfortunately, they had closed early, even though it was the big weekend for <laughs> the Lovecraft con Convention. Fortunately, one of the Brown Libraries had uh, an exhibit of some Lovecraft materials from their collection. I went to the Brown Bookstore. I went to a couple of other bookstores, one of which was selling uh, Lovecraft paraphernalia, like Christmas ornaments, Cthulhu Christmas. Wow. Uh, Christmas ornaments. <laughs> wow. And a Cthulhu uh, what, what, water, you, you know, what, 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 what whatever those kids use, uh, Mark, you, you, you would, you would know. Like a, a squirt gun or no, something no, like no, that? No, no, no. Yeah, what do you call a water bottle. Thermos. Water, thermos, water bottle. Right, right. A water bottle, sorry. My, my children use them all the time, and they lose them, and so I'm very happy to bring a Cthulhu water bottle home, which my uh, nine-year-old son is currently using. I also picked up from the dealer's room. <laughs> The Antarctic Express by Kenneth Height. Now, this is a mashup of, uh, of the, the, the Arctic <laughs> Express. The Polar Express. Uh, the, excuse me, the Polar Express mm -hmm. and, and Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. <laughs> the, the author was not there, but the artist was. She inscribed this copy to my three children Great. with a little Cthulhu cartoon. And this is a, just a wonderful mashup that kind of captures the spirit of both Lovecraft and Chris Van Allsburg. I mean, what more can you ask for? <laughs> That's wonderful. I would say it's the one thing I, I bought in, in the dealer's room. Now, they have also in Providence renamed intersection of two streets on College Hill where Lovecraft lived, Lovecraft Square. I mean, the big story in a way to me was how Providence has embraced Lovecraft in a way that it has not uh, before. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the organizer 
who's a Lovecraft fan, but also a marine biologist, connected with all the important people in Providence and the state of Rhode Island. So there was this support from various groups, I can't name them now. Uh, and I, I, th I think Providence has finally woken up that, to the fact that Lovecraft is potentially big convention business. As I say, mm -hmm. some 1,200 people supposedly came, went to restaurants. Saturday night uh, was water fire night, if you know that, in Providence. Mm -hmm. They now have in the summers on the, the river that's been opened up that was originally or had been paved over for a while, uh, essentially bonfires and people gather along the sides and there are people selling things, there are restaurants. It's, it's a really wonderful scene. I actually went out that night for dinner with Les Klinger, who some of you may know as the compiler of the new annotated Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. Well, Les is now compiling the new annotated Lovecraft which will come out from W.W. W. Norton uh, next fall. How many people do you think were there? As I say, uh, the official count was 1,200. Now, there are events going on uh, in, in at least two hotels, and there's a lot of it that, that I didn't see, but I believe this is the biggest gathering of people uh, to an event that was devoted exclusively to, to Lovecraft. I mean, there's an annual World Fantasy Convention, there's the World Horror Convention, but this is devoted solely to Lovecraft. I, I went to a convention two years ago in Phoenix called MythosCon. Mm -hmm. Barely 200 people showed up. I mean, part of it may have been it was January, part of it was you know, Phoenix. Uh, I, I was quite disappointed that the turnout was so low. Uh, on the other hand, this event in Providence, I mean, f far exceeded my expectations. and. I guess my thought after after the end was, well, can they repeat this? Can we sort of keep going over Lovecraft again and again? And I'm not quite sure, but apparently the organizers do plan to come back in two years to Providence. And you know, what do you think Lovecraft would think of all of this? If his his uh, posthumous fame and of plush Cthulhu dolls and all of this. I, I think he, he would be astounded and, and amused. <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the, pity, the pity is he, he, he died young in part because he wasn't eating enough. He wasn't making enough money from, from his, uh, his own fiction and he was not a practical man. He, he didn't get a day job mm -hmm. that could support him. Uh, you know, he, he, he really is the epitome of the starving artist who uh, re remained true to his art and uh, paid a price for it with an early death and lack of recognition, but he's he's gotten you know the posthumous fame uh, that he never imagined, and that I never imagined as a young Lovecraft fan some decades ago. So I I, I just find this all uh, immensely satisfying and think, gosh, we. I mean, there's nowhere to go from here. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that tour of the show, Peter. It's always great to have you here. Thank you very much.
And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 